The following conversation is part three in the trilogy I've had with Evan Westrup. If you haven't listened to the first two chapters, I very much encourage you to go back and start from the beginning. In this installment, Evan talks about what he's working on now after his very distinguished 14 years working directly in politics. And I just, I love talking to folks when they are at this position in their lives because I feel as though he could go anywhere and do anything and it's exciting. Toward the end, I throw out some pretty wacky ideas, but if it ends up happening what I predict, then you heard it here first. I think we recorded this on Wednesday, April 28th. Or is that a Tuesday? Maybe that was Tuesday. It's getting wild here in quarantine, one way or the other. It's been such a pleasure to spend the three or so hours with Evan in conversation. And I hope you enjoy this final part. So thank you so much for listening. And music as always by Matthias DeWild. Okay. Evan. How are you? I'm excited for part three of our trilogy conversation. Yeah, I'm... I have to be honest, I'm a bit bit shocked this has uh, turned into a trilogy. I'm not. I, I knew you had it in you. And, <laughs> you know, over our first two volumes, we covered your insider political career from internships in Washington, D.C., to the parliament uh, in Scotland, to fellowships all around California and when our you know you our fearless protagonist uh, ended our last episode you had just left the California State House and you're uh, entering a brave new world um, taking care of your mother who is right. healthy and in remission and indeed and we got a bit of a teaser uh, in terms of your work with uh, former Governor Jerry Brown, but I was hoping you could fill us in a little bit more about what that work entails. Sure. Uh, I'll back up and and say that that again, coming out of of the Jerry Brown administration, which you know ended in at the very uh, very start of 2019. I definitely needed some downtime. I just wanted to decompress. And, uh, and so my plan was not to start, uh, working right away, even though I did a, did a few interviews. Again, my mom's health situation helped refocus me and, and really make the decision for me. But, but what started happening is Jerry Brown being, being thrifty as we've, uh, as we've discussed <laughs> previous discussions, uh, hadn't hired anyone to really manage any of his life post governorship. And so that largely fell on, uh, the former first lady, his wife, Anne, and a random mix of former staffers who were just receiving event invites and, uh, other, other media inquiries and, and things that, that just 
that come. Uh, yeah, he was sure. under the impression, I think, that that he would ride off into the sunset, go off to his ranch, which is up in Calusa County, about an hour north of Sacramento, uh, and would just sort of be forgotten about. I, I think we we had a good feeling that and and uh, good good knowledge uh, based on empirical uh, evidence that was gathering in our inbox that that wasn't going to happen. And uh, and so some of that, you know, to his to to, to be fair was based on how things ended his, his previous stint in office. So when, when he left in 83, the economy had tanked. He lost his bid for, for U.S. Senate. Uh, and, and there was some scorn. Uh, he, he was sort of out in the, in the proverbial political wilderness, uh, if you will. And so I think some of that informed what he thought life would look like post-governorship. Now, again, it didn't look that way. So what happened is a lot of things started coming to me. I was continuing to to flag uh, invites and and other things that were were coming to me for for much of the time that I was really just not working and traveling, taking and care of my mom. I'm so curious. Did you have an active email from your former position? Like, how do people actually get in contact with you? <laughs> yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. What what was largely happening is that people were contacting the the current Newsom administration press office and asking, mm-hmm. you know, where can I send this? And I, uh, having put in the time I put in, didn't want to just disappear. And so I said, you know, give them give them my email address. And I had the foresight to at least set up uh, an email that would would help me deal with that intake and uh, and have a little separation from. Uh, from my, my personal email, which I, you know, try to stay a little organized. And it was, it was one, one, I guess, coping mechanism or, or way to maintain my sanity while I was in the thick of it uh, was to at least feel like my, I had some, some carved out personal life, even if it was just maintaining a separate inbox. Anyway, so all this, all of these invites start coming, coming my way. Like how many um, are we talking about here? Oh, I mean, over the course of the year, it's, it's dozens. Uh, and then depending, no, no, this isn't, this isn't overwhelming. It did okay. give me great, uh, respect, uh, and admiration. I already had it, but great respect and admiration for our, our previous scheduler who had again, dealt with this intake previously and had, uh, had moved on to another role and decided that, that she wasn't going to do it anymore. Uh, so again, you you learn to appreciate and respect these things a little bit more once once they start coming your way. Empathy, now, I believe, is the word. Yeah, exactly. Very empathetic um, toward that. Now, one thing Jerry Brown, we've we've had a few Jerry Brown isms, but one of his sort of words, his his uh, group of words to live by is to 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 never limit your options by making a decision too soon. Interesting. So, so he's applied this to many, many uh, areas in his life, whether he's running, whether it's running for a campaign uh, or getting married uh, or making important policy decisions. But this was certainly applied to, to uh, responding to events and uh, and setting his, his schedule. So it, he, he would often not commit to something until uh, until very late 
And this, this of course, drives event organizers crazy. It makes it very difficult to plan uh, events around them. This is something you're familiar with, of course, I given your line am. of work. <laughs> given your line of work, you don't want that uncertainty. You want some clarity. Politicians so anyway, uh, in my world um, are the only <laughs> folks less reliable than celebrities. <laughs> Um, the, yeah, the, the only the, time I've ever stopped an auction uh, mid bid was when, <laughs> at the time, I think she was Attorney General Kamala Harris uh, mm-hmm. showed up to a fundraiser in San Jose, and I had a stop. She came on, gave her speech, left, and then I just resumed the bidding where I was, <laughs> and that was an instructive moment yeah. for me. Yeah, I uh, got really. Uh, good at apologizing uh, profusely and again, managing expectations, which we discussed a little bit before it's, it's necessary because you're, you're generally showing up late uh, when this individual shows up, particularly if it's an event like the one you described, you're disrupting things. Uh, The person comes in and of course is, is believes they, they are the center of attention regardless of who else is there. And, uh, so anyway, it it can uh, it can be a challenge, but what was what was sort of happening in in my work world was I was uh, looking at, at at potentially doing something in house in Silicon Valley. I was interviewing with uh, I interviewed with a, a big foundation in Los Angeles. I had had sort of thought the next step was to go in house uh, somewhere with. Uh, the, the the way I thought of it was was sort of with with private sector resources, but a focus on public impact, and so that could that could take any shape, of course. But uh, as I was interviewing and thinking about these jobs, it became clear to me that this was going to mean I would live somewhere else during the week and be back home with my partner over the weekend, which we're pretty independent. She's used to me not being particularly. Uh, present a uh, great Going deal to China of China for three weeks. Uh, yeah. So we, we've, we've got a, a, an understanding that I think is, is necessary, frankly, for both of us, but it, it's also who we are. We're both pretty independent people, but when we come together, uh, we are, are better for it and, and really squeeze every drop out of the time we have now, but thinking about it, so whatever income differential was coming in was also going to go toward housing. I was going to be community. Anyway, it just didn't make sense. And so as I had continued to to play this role for Jerry Brown, it became clear that if I was going to do this, it was going to provide me the flexibility to continue doing what I wanted to do with my mom and making sure that she recovered. Uh, and building out uh, off of uh, the foundation we had constructed in the governor's office, getting to work on some interesting issues and, and then ultimately getting a paycheck. So I decided I might as well turn this into a, into a job. And, and so that's, that's really how, how it came together was, it was just in my face. I thought I would also treat the work a little more professionally if I uh, was being paid for it. So I went to Jerry Brown and his wife and said, okay, I'll continue to continue to do this. And in fact, I'll, I'll do quite a bit more for you, but, uh, but we need to, we need to figure out how to, how to make this a job. And so, so they've got, he's got a campaign account with, um, with quite a bit of money still in it that can be dedicated toward uh, a number of uh, 
a number of issues that he cares about. And so his focus really out of office has been on three things, and it's certainly expanded beyond those three things, but, but most of his work is on three main issues, and that's uh, nuclear pro- proliferation, climate change, uh, and criminal justice. And so a lot of my work has to do with advancing uh, those three issues or his work on those three issues in partnership with a number of other entities. So he is the executive chair, for example, of the group called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which has been around uh, for for many decades. And they release what you may be familiar with. You read about it once a year, uh, uh, a sort of public relations tool, but it's very serious in how it's calculated and set. It's called the Doomsday Clock. It tells us how close we are to, to catastrophe. And there are three things that, of course, influence that, uh, two of which I've, I've already mentioned that are, are uh, really important to the governors, so climate, yeah. nu- nuclear, and uh, disruptive technology. Uh, and then he's also a board member of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, which also works, of course, on, on these issues. And then finally, he decided um, to set up an institute called the California-China Climate Institute at uh, UC Berkeley. So it's housed within their College of Natural Resources and their law school. And that is intended to, as the name of the institute suggests, advance uh, cooperation partnership between two of the world's largest economies uh, on climate uh, at a time where obviously geopolitical tensions are, are high and there isn't a lot of cooperation, collaboration, and partnership at the at the federal level. So this is attempting to find some new pathways toward uh, addressing and attacking this existential threat through research, training, and dialogue. So that's that's, that's what keeps a me lot. what keeps me busy these days. Uh, and I'm so curious because you signed on to this in early 2019. How how has your thinking around it evolved? You were so passionate about politics broadly, going back to your stint in D.C. as an intern, and you have just poured so many hours and so much energy into politics, especially in California. Uh, I'm guessing that your hours aren't what they once were. No. And are you enjoying that extra time or are you antsy? Have you started any side projects? Like, where are you now? emotionally, um, ambitiously, um, professionally, like, like what are, what are you feeling now? What are your thoughts for the near future? Yeah, to be totally honest, I'm still figuring it out. Uh, I went from when I left the governor's office to sort of functioning as if I was still in it. So I was waking up really early. I was reading my usual news clips and uh, and sort of political newsletters, I was listening to to an unhealthy amount of of NPR and watching uh, way more cable news uh, than one should should consume. And and then I I 
I uninstalled Twitter from my phone. Smart. I I traveled. I again I connected with some friends who who really don't care about what's happening uh, politically. And and again with what was happening with my mom, it it sort of gave me some perspective. The way I've been trying to think about it was like in life we have these buckets that that we fill that we that that are, are, are filled at various levels at, at different times in our life. And so my work bucket was, was really filled to the brim overflowing. Uh, my family and friends, that bucket, I, I sort of tried to siphon some water out of the, uh, out of, out of that professional bucket into that. And then Outside of outside of those areas, there are of course other things that we do to that that we that we derive some some sort of uh, purpose and, and pleasure from. So you know, sports and hobbies and uh, work for nonprofits and, and boards and that sort of thing. And so I, in some ways, am, am rediscovering these other buckets that have been gathering dust that frankly haven't been filled and. All of it, I think, is just sort of a redistribution of my time and energy to try to find fulfillment uh, in different ways. And again, I don't think I've I've got the balance quite right uh, because for so long, uh, my my purpose, my fulfillment was was career based, uh, and it, I think it it still will be moving forward, but it just it won't be at the level it was. So, what other buckets can I fill? uh, to, to, you know, derive that, that level of, of accomplishment, connection, purpose, impact, all of the things that, that we, that sort of get us up in the morning and and give us energy. So I'm still figuring it out. I've worked with a number of former professional athletes in the not-for-profit space. And Mm -hmm. for many of them, even someone as high profile as say Derek Jeter, um, yeah. There is a very distinct difference uh, between who will answer uh, your phone calls when you are active, when, when you're in the league, when you're still playing, and how mm-hmm. many people answer your phone calls when you retire. Uh, and yeah. it comes as oftentimes a really unpleasant shock um, how much juice uh, you <laughs> don't really have once your once your your playing days are over, and right. I'm curious to know how it's been for you uh, in this transition because I you know Governor Brown uh, when he left uh, in 1983, um, you know that was probably <laughs> the the least amount of juice he had in his buckets to mix all of my sure. metaphors, um, but. <laughs> You went from a position um, that had a, a fair amount of power, and there weren't going to be a lot of people um, who, if you needed to get them on the phone, were going to ignore you. Um, I'm curious to know how that transition has been for you personally. In some ways, that transition has been been eased by my uh, realism and and in some ways my cynicism uh, within within my job uh, politics I, I think there's a degree of of transactionalism in in every field uh, in politics it can be 
more overt, I think, than in other fields. And so at no point, even in my role, was I under the impression that I wasn't totally expendable and replaceable at any point. Uh, what mattered was who I, who I was working for, who the, the individual elected by the people uh, of the state. So in some ways that I think that helped with the transition. I'm sure. In, and it also it also helps provide some clarity and reveal who who was around because of what you were doing uh, and and who was around because of you uh, and the person you are. And while that that can can be that can be tough to swallow at points, I think it it I would take that that sort of direct knowledge uh, any day over being delusional and believing that that you know you're something more than you are. Uh, again, it's very much very much the position. So what I don't miss is going to social outings and gatherings and being lobbied on issues or being cornered about, you know, a bill the governor may have vetoed or something uh, that he did that was unpopular. I mean, that was, that was inescapable. So it's really nice to, to just, to just be, be able to chill out and, and to not constantly be wearing it. I think my job also in being a spokesperson, being the, the lead communicator uh, for, for the governor and the state of California you don't, you don't ever take that hat off. And if you do, you don't last in the role long uh, because there's always someone looking to trip you up. I mean, that includes social media posts. I've basically been, been dead on social media for 10 years because uh, it's a lot easier to, to stay in your role uh, when, uh, when you're not uh, acting on impulse or, or providing ammunition for your enemies, if you were to post something personal that could could be used against you later on, you just never know how things are going to be used. I, I could tell you some stories about sort of opposition research and and the the lengths people go to uh, within our world, within my world, to to try to to play gotcha and uh, to dig up dirt. And so I don't miss that part of it. So there are some there are some positives I think uh, in in being on the outside. I do miss the the excitement of coming together with really smart people as a group and solving tough problems. I don't get necessarily in the current role I'm in the same level of collaboration and uh, and I'm not surrounded by by uh, by really smart people all day long. A lot of my work is is solo. So I do miss I do miss some of that. Uh, I miss the sort of team camaraderie, the uh, yeah the the sort of roll up your sleeves and and finding a way forward. But um, yeah, that's 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 what I got off the top of my head, CK. <laughs> well, I'm also curious in terms of you know looking at what's out there. I can't think of a more high-profile transition from a comms team than the Crooked Media guys. And yeah, what, yeah. what they were able to parlay in their role uh, with um, 
Keep It at 1600, uh, which was the podcast they had at mm-hmm. Bill Simmons' uh, The Ringer uh, back in 2016. And mm-hmm. then their, um, you know, <laughs> they, they like a lot of us, uh, could not have been more wrong in 2016. I think that they oftentimes were quoting uh, David Pluff and saying, don't be bedwetters or, or fine. <laughs> Hillary's got this in the bag. And it right. uh, turned out that uh, not only was it not in the bag, but the uh, bag was set in fire and thrown off a cliff. Um, and all that being said, they really have a place um, four years later after you know starting that that one podcast where they have a media company that is mm-hmm. playing on a lot of their skills uh, in the comms department of the Obama White House um, and also their connections you know in a, in a lot of different fields and mm-hmm. I'm curious to know if anybody, approached you about a similar opportunity, something crooked media adjacent in 2018, or if you ever considered going down a route like that on your own and creating something from scratch? It's a, it's a good question. I I think there are a few, few big differences coming out of the white house and and coming out of uh, a governor's office. Uh, there just isn't the level of attention uh, on on a governor uh, that there is on a on a president. And uh, even if it's a governor of the fifth largest economy of the world, there just isn't there aren't the eyeballs. Um, with their success, like so much success in, in our world, they they had really good timing. And while while they started. You know, I think a lot of the interest uh, came from the fact that Trump emerged and people were just looking for for some safe space or or answers or or uh, somewhere to go that that felt uh, that 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 reflected their values and and that asked the questions they wanted to they wanted asked. And 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 they had a voice that wasn't what you see on CNN. It was a little little rougher around the edges or, or on MSNBC even, uh, and, and really the telling it like it is to an audience, to a friendly audience. And so th- they, they met that, that moment in, in a pretty unique way, just as again, podcasts are, are becoming huge. And so anyway, I, my, my mind goes to sort of trying to understand their rise versus, you know, whether that would be possible here. Um, it's not something I immediately, immediately gravitated toward, uh, or have 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 given great thought to. I, I, in my role, I think I was successful in in many respects because of my anonymity. Uh, my my focus was generally, well, almost always, on uh, protecting the governor and getting his voice out. Uh, it wasn't about uh, about me, and while that doesn't lead to podcasts or book offers after you leave office, it meant we had a pretty successful run, and I was able to to last in the role. I think a lot longer than when you make yourself uh, the center of attention. Now, 
in the White House, you can't avoid it. There are so many more eyes uh, on you. So if you you can name the White House press secretaries, guarantee if you asked a hundred people in California who the press secretary was right now, they they couldn't they couldn't name them. Maybe someone in Sacramento could. So it's just it's a different level of attention, which leads to different levels of opportunity. So uh, not not something that that was necessarily on my radar, although it, it, it could be fun. I think what you're doing is is really cool. Um, and I could see putting something together uh, based on on people I know having having interesting conversations, even if it was just focused in the communications field the press world, you could have some really interesting communications that I think would be of value to a, a small subset of the population. But but doing what the, the crooked media guys do is, is something something different altogether, much bigger scope. If you had to pick a job in the private sector that was ideal, a dream job, mm. can you point toward uh, something that we could understand, uh, you know, is there a particular <laughs> company that you've always been, uh, fascinated by or a role, um, do you see yourself as a, you know, a consigliere or, you know, the chief of staff, um, to, you know, someone like, like a Tim Cook at Apple? Like, I, I'm just, I'm curious to know, and also if, if there are any ways to answer this by pointing to, other um, comms directors who worked for, say, a senator or a governor, and you could say, hey, this is a path um, someone in a similar position took that I find uh, potentially interesting. Yeah. Yeah, there are a number of number of different paths, and I think that's what's exciting in my field. You can really go any direction. I could, I could stay in public sector. I could go private. I could do sort of the philanthropic world. Uh, Jay Carney, of course, went went to Amazon uh, from the White House, which is which is a big, gnarly role. Uh, but but I could see that that sort of high profile company being the communications lead at a company like that. Very interesting. A lot of the Obama White House, the, their communication staff ended up uh, in Silicon Valley. Yeah, plus ended up at Uber, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and and yeah, there are a number of number of folks at, at Lyft as well, uh, and I know Apple has some former Schwarzenegger people uh, buried in it. It really depends on the company and the culture. I'm also, for me, in some ways, I would love love to be somewhere that isn't exclusively political. I, I need a little break from just the the daily political grind. I haven't found that that perfect company or that perfect organization. Uh, I think our, our friend, uh, she's on the marketing side, but I could see a communications role being pretty fun. Our friend, Allison, uh, Yee Garcia, who, yeah. uh, marketing for the, the, uh, Republic here in Sacramento, which is the franchise for the, the next MLS team. That's that, that would be a pretty fun role. Uh, and I think it, it, it really depends on timing. So I see that as potentially a fun role because they're going to have to do a lot of political navigation as they build a stadium, uh, which any, any projects are always going to be scrutinized based on cost and timing. Um, you've got 
you've got sort of all sorts of relationships that have to be built and that are built, frankly, but have to grow at the local level from businesses to interest groups um, to city government. Uh, you've got a relationship with, with their mothership, which is the, the lead commissioner. And so that's, that's a, another interesting sort of uh, world to navigate. But anyway, that, that's an example. I think being, you know, going in somewhere like, like a FIFA would be pretty interesting given how much tumult and challenges they've had. I don't speak French, so that would probably uh, rule me out. But uh, but that could be that could also be pretty interesting when you go to these big sporting governing bodies with with some some hairy issues and or troubled past. The the U.S. men's national team um, always sure. could use um, better PR because uh, not a lot of good has come out of uh, that organization uh, in recent years. I, I've definitely uh, definitely perused the uh, postings. On uh, on the U.S. Soccer Federation website from time to time. That's that's one of those like daydream jobs where it, it it they're based in Chicago as well. Which I don't know if Chicago's in the cards, but that could be a that could be a pretty fun job. You get to travel quite a bit, uh, and and it's got its own uh, political challenges and leadership challenges. So yeah, those those are a few those are a few that come to mind. Well, I like talking these things over because you got my mental wheels spinning of <laughs> people down the line uh, that I've become friends with over the years um, who may be good for you to talk to um, yeah. in terms of when these jobs open up. Um, there are very few I, people that are qualified, but I'm sure you have your connections, but it's, it's always good to build a team to get, get uh, you, that right placement you never know where where the next opportunity is going to come from and in so many of the, the that we've talked about and so many of the jobs that have come along it's been uh it's been from totally unexpected places or or sort of very peripheral connections uh and so putting it out in the universe can lead to uh lead to some interesting opportunities i'll, I'll be i'll be candid in saying that i i'm actually I'm enjoying the idea of building out uh, my own, my own sort of strategy, political public affairs shop here in Sacramento for a little while, just to to see how that goes. What's attractive to, to me about that is getting to work with a, a variety of of clients on on a, a number of different issues. So it's not not the same every day, and and that's I mean that's really part of what attracted me to the job in the governor's office is no two days were the same. You could wake up thinking you're, you're going to focus your time and energy on one thing and the new cycle changes all of that and shifts all of that or world events shift all of that. So can yeah, we'll us, see. Can you tell us a little bit about where uh, the setup of your own shop currently stands and how that intersects with uh, your management of the former governor's affairs? Well, so I've got, let's see. So my, my previous role, <clears throat> and we, I think we discussed this a little bit, but I had, I had, uh, I generally had a fellow. So through the, the program that I started my, my career in, we always had a fellow in the office. We had 
yeah, two or three. You talked about that 7 a.m. call the first day of work, and it was the guy calling up and saying, what do you yeah, need exactly. me to do? And you were like, yep. uh, and you're like, I, yeah, I, I just loved that anecdote from part two. Yeah, well, it, it was really uh, a training ground boot camp, I think, as you put it uh, yeah. previously. It, it really was a boot camp for, for a career. And one of the best things I did uh, in the time I was in the governor's office was hire uh, four, four different fellows to, to work full time after their fellowship ended in my office. A number have gone on to other other placements and appointments throughout state government, but I think that was that was for sure one of the best things uh, I did in the job. And man, there's some some talented, hungry, scrappy, smart uh, smart young young youngsters coming up. Uh, so yeah, so I always had one one of those uh, one one fellow, a couple junior level staff three or four deputies. Uh, and then what, what was really cool about the office and, and specifically about the press, the press office is that you work with every unit in the governor's office. You have no choice. So it really is set up um, like, uh, like an organization that has to, has to do a, a little bit on everything. And most of the time, when something gets to you, it's because it's either gone wrong or, or there needs to be a decision made. And so I worked with, you know, we were constantly getting sued. There were constantly legal issues, uh, especially with the, with the Trump administration in the last two years. So I was constant. I probably met with our attorneys more than uh, more than any other unit. We were also constantly getting uh, Public Records Act requests. So these are requests where journalists or citizens uh, ask for your emails or for reports or other information, uh, and you've you've got to comb through all of these documents and, and figure out you know if there's anything that that is going to be problematic or uh, what what story could come out of it. Um, I constantly worked with our appointments unit, so state of California obviously hires quite a few people, but we, that also means we have personnel issues <laughs> when you when you have a sure. state the size of, Cal- of, of California. Uh, we have our our cabinet, which oversees all of uh, all of our individual agencies and departments. So of course, always working with them. We had our finance department. We had uh, senior advisors in on tribal issues, on the environment. On transportation, uh, we had our, our uh, legislative affairs unit, which of course dealt with bills, and so there were thousands of bills that hit the governor's desk every year. So anyway, the the fun was getting to work with all of those different people. So while I had this self-contained unit, I was on my feet a good chunk of the day, just moving moving around the office. So it was called the horseshoe because it's shaped like a horseshoe. Uh, sort of, I probably put in you know, steps that would rival my partners on her walking <laughs> desk <laughs> every day. Uh, and then, and then a big part of the job, which, which isn't really recognized is my, I, I got to help hire like 60 people across state government. So everyone, every agency and department had had my equivalent uh, communications director. And sometimes they had a couple, they had a deputy. And so I got to I got to help hire all of the, the folks that were our appointees in these agencies and departments. And we heard from them every single day. So uh, that, that varied from, you know, at, at our prisons, we might have a riot. So I'm going to talk to our, our corrections communications director 
we might have a major issue with with infrastructure, one of our bridges. So I'm going to hear from our our transport transportation agency uh, communications director. We could have some sort of issue in terms of environmental regulations, say at a battery recycling plant is one one example that comes to mind. So I'll, I'll hear from our press lead over at, at EPA, but incredibly dynamic, exciting, interesting work every day. But so that, that was the team I worked with. Now the team I work with is really Jerry Brown and, and, and Gus Brown. Uh, <laughs> and then different, very different. Leaner. And of course I, I worked, yeah, I worked closely with them every day and was on the phone every day with, with, or, or uh, talking to them in person every day uh, in the governor's office. But again, many, many, many more players, um, and uh, and then of course at, at the institute, at U, which is housed at UC Berkeley. Again, uh, there are a handful of staffers there that all that I I correspond with just about every day, depending on what the issue is. How many hours a week are you working these days? Oh, these days, it's it's uh, it probably is closer to to normal, like normal human working hours. Uh, forty probably forty hours. My 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 work hours aren't necessarily normal. The governor often will work, uh, governor Brown, former governor, excuse me again. My, <laughs> my tendency is to continue to call him the governor. Habits die hard. <laughs> exactly. So he, he often will work late into the night. He's not much of a morning person, which is, which is fine with me. And so, and then he also doesn't really know, or care what day of the week it is. So, you know, if something needs to get done on the weekend, it gets done on the weekend. Uh, his, his outlook on all of this work was always sort of, it, it was more of a hobby in his life than it was a job. So, so that also, of course, impacted uh, hours and, and, uh, and routine or lack thereof. And so yeah, I want to pivot the conversation uh, slightly. I've taken up um, approximately two hours and 40 minutes of your time <laughs> over the last week or so. Um, and it, we just have this wealth of backstory in your own personal story. And I would just be remiss if I didn't ask a couple pertinent hypothetical questions that are burning in all the citizens mind given and, and and feel free to decline answering any of them for any reason um but you know in the last 19 minutes or so that we have together sure. um you know it's just off the top of my head if uh presumptive democratic nominee joe biden Vice, former Vice President Joe Biden called you up and said, Evan, who should I pick as my running mate? How would you answer him? Hmm. Hmm. I would, uh, I would say somebody that is, uh, is going to inject some, some youth and energy into the race. I would, uh, I would suggest that it not be someone from a state he expects to, to already win. I think you need someone who can carry, uh, carry or help carry a uh, battleground state. Uh, some diversity would be, would be pretty critical, I think. Um, 
So uh, that's what what comes to mind right away. And I mean, and that answer would exclude uh, both Senator Harris and Senator Warren. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other issues um, facing Senator Warren, who I think a lot of people uh, are very excited about. uh, I know I hadn't thought this through, but if she is the nominee and Biden were to win, uh, my understanding is that the Republican governor of Massachusetts uh, could pick her replacement and that it would likely be a Republican Mm. and Mm -hmm. which could potentially set up a very, uh, very democratic, very Democrats uh, problem where we win the White House and we should have won uh, the Senate also. Um, But the balance is uh, they have 51-49 because of that appointee. Um, yeah and so yeah that that's a consideration <laughs> for sure yeah, there are there are always sort of these these moves aren't done uh in in isolation or in a, in a vacuum uh they have they have a, a ripple effect i i w- how many people can tell you who who hillary clinton's running mate was um i'm guessing for, <laughs> n- not very many no no uh but but truly i think the choice should be uh, with an eye toward winning. That's that's all that really matters. I agree, and not everyone um, seconds me in in this next conjecture out of my mouth. Uh, but I <laughs> I do believe that there were a significant amount of evangelicals um, who needed the sugar of Pence to mm. swallow the bitter pill of Trump and. Yeah that a combination of Pence and McConnell holding up the Merrick Garland nomination um, allowed them to hold their noses um, yeah. and, and get the uh, get those Federalist Society judges um, they love so much. Right, and, and even McCain's pick uh, with Palin, while it was, was absolutely blasphemous on the left, uh, that was done with an eye toward totally shifting the narrative and the, and, and, uh, and winning and, and, and galvanizing a base that, that wasn't excited or inspired. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that we should necessarily go that, that route. Uh, and I'm also cautious in providing that, that long list of attributes, uh, because again, as, as we, we briefly discussed the Democrats, I think are at fault for, for, for letting the perfect, uh, get in the way of the the pragmatic, the the necessary. Yeah. Uh, you know what's gonna what's what's gonna get us to the finish line and and across before the next guy. Have you come, Have you come across in your work at all um, people or impressions of say Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan or Stacey Abrams uh, in Georgia? Um, some I I know Stacey Abrams. She's just through she's an alum of a, of a program that that i'm doing that's that's pretty cool that's that's uh through the german marshall fund uh called the marshall memorial fellowship which is cool because that that it, it's a sort of international facing uh program that that looks for for local leaders across the u.s and and exposes them to to leaders across across europe to try and bridge the the transatlantic divide so that tells me that she's got an eye beyond of course uh, more, more, more local, local or parochial, uh, issues. Um, yeah, those, those are na- the names, names have, have definitely 
definitely come up in, in, uh, in, in my circles. Not that that means that those people are ultimately going to be going to be elevated. And do you have any concerns that uh, might echo mine about the pick of someone like Sandra Klobuchar? Um, insofar as she is such a middle of the road um, centrist and that someone like Biden uh, might be suffering from a charisma deficit and she doesn't do anything to uh, galvanize those who are looking for charismatic leaders or progressive leaders? Yeah, well, what, what your question gets at is a, a larger, more fundamental question, which I, I don't have a direct answer to, but it's one worth, worth giving more thought to and pondering, which is what, what, what drives Democrats to show up and vote? Good question. Uh, and and who who is who is going to do that? Uh, what what are, are are there are there key issues that drive them that we should be thinking about? Is it uh, is it the the sort of Sanders style energy? Uh, is it is it race? Is it ethnicity? Is it youth? I, I don't have a direct answer, but whoever's making this decision needs to needs to be thinking in, in sort of naked political. Uh, expediency on on who's going to turn out the most people, and if 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 I'm sure there's an argument to be made for for many of the names that are, are floating around. Uh, I've never been one who who needs to be inspired to show up. I, I'm not your average voter. Uh, I, I have voted in every election, <laughs> so so I I'm I'm more the pragmatic, practical, uh, driven by uh, by by. What, who needs to be there to get things done? I think the Democratic Party has has moved that way with the Biden pick and in coalescing before the Democrats shot themselves. Uh, I thought that was that was pretty significant. But I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, CK, whether uh, who, who that who that person is. I think it's a lot to put it on a single candidate, a vice presidential pick uh, to do all of those things. <laughs> So, so maybe your question is revealing the deficit we have, um, or or some of the the shortcomings with with the the candidate, uh, the, the the primary candidate, which is which is Biden. But I, but I I don't know about that. I, I I can find lots of things that that uh, that get me excited about Biden, and the biggest being he's not Donald Trump. That is a very big reason to be excited about him, and honestly. It's uh, it kind of eclipses everything else so that no other line sh- uh, shines through. Um, right, and if, if we're in we're in the middle of of a crisis that is is unprecedented in in scope uh, and and impact. Uh, there really isn't precedent, at least in our lifetime. Uh, and if if experience at this point, if we haven't concluded that experience matters and counts. Uh, and we can't can't use that as an argument to to elect Joe Biden. Then uh, I, I might need to move to another country uh, after uh, after November's election. It's something that I've started to think through in just broad strokes. You know what what it would take uh, and what my responsibility is uh, to you know the country that I'm I'm a citizen of and I love um, and. It's it's pretty bizarre. Have you heard 
any names floated um, that don't come from the political realm. And I know that the word out of Biden's camp is that he does plan to pick a woman as his running mate, which I actually think mm-hmm. is awesome. And I think it's about fucking time. But is have you heard anything that would lead you to believe that there is an outside chance it could be someone... Not Sheryl Sandberg, because I think that Facebook has a little bit too much baggage. Right. But but someone of perhaps her stature, um, her uh, track record of success. Um, I know that you guys ran against Meg Whitman in uh, 2010. uh, And I'm sure you have some biases from that about people from uh, the business world transferring into... Um, transferring into the political realm as political neophytes. Uh, but I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Well, there, uh, and we've, we've had discussed this a little bit, but there, there's no other profession where one believes that having had no experience in it, they can suddenly take the very top job. I will not tell you uh, that, that I could be the CEO of a, of a fortune 500 company, uh, because I, I, having, having never worked for a fortune 500 company. So there's, there's this sort of interesting, uh, thought and idea with respect to, to politics and, and the, the transferability of, um, I think some of it is just corporate, uh, arrogance. Um, but anyway, that I digress. I do think it's a little bit different for a VP. I, I, they're, they're, it could be plausible to to bring someone someone in that that is that leader. I don't know who that is. So it, it, hypothetically, it, the the idea, the concept of it would would be compelling, particularly if they were uh, in a battleground state, had a story um, that that captured uh, America's story. That that you know could be somebody that would could would could actually show what a successful business leader looks like when juxtaposed with, uh, with Trump's failure. Um, so yeah, in theory, it, it sounds interesting. I don't know who that is though. Either do I, and I've been kind of searching around to see if, if anybody's talking about it. Um, I'll tell you there are lots of political and, and PR consultants who would be happy to promote that individual because generally these, these corporate leaders see politics as a hobby and are always willing to spend a lot of money, uh, to, uh, to float themselves as a potential candidate, we saw this with the Starbucks CEO, and that didn't that, that didn't that what? didn't last particularly long. A and I don't mean to be clown. harsh. Oh, no, you I don't mean to be. Should. I don't he mean to was, be harsh, but he was but, a um, but again, there are lots of people willing to take money to uh, help people uh, pursue their their uh, their hobbies in the political I, realm. I have a chronically bad back. I had back surgery for. Uh, you know, a herniated disc um, when Ooh. I was in my mid twenties, and I have never felt a. Uh, usually, anybody with back issues, I'm like super empathetic for. I'm just like my heart goes out to them, and there was nobody like I like raised my fist and like a yeah when I heard that Howard <laughs> Schultz uh, when he slipped a disc and had to suspend his campaign indefinitely because what a distraction he was from, uh, you know, just the adults in the room. I mean, he managed to, to get a, a great 60 minutes. Well, I, I'd say it wasn't great. He managed to get, <laughs> he managed to get a 60 minutes profile and, and uh, that, that helped him launch his campaign, which is not easy. It took us eight years to get a, get a nice 60 minutes piece, which was probably the, the culmination of, of 
the work uh, the work I did to to see a piece like that air. So anyway, to his credit, <laughs> he had he hired some people that well connected that well, he made that money. happen. What's that? He did have money, and yeah, you know, like I I think that it's, it's part of sixty minutes's purview to uh, interview uh, someone like like Mr. Schultz because. Um, no, he he did run Starbucks very successfully over for uh, sure, many for sure. Years. And, and these, I mean, again, I'm dismissive. Um, uh, when I dismiss these things, it's from a very insider perspective. Insider's perspective. I love it. My Stay perspective inside. is not necessarily, but it's not necessarily as valuable as as how someone will be perceived by voters. Fair. And that's that's all that matters at the end of the day is is getting more votes than than your opponent. That's that's at its core. <laughs> what politics is. So if you can find a way to do that and your attributes, your experience, uh, clearly Trump fooled enough people to think that, that his attributes are an experience or, or, uh, however he, he magically crafted his story, uh, that, that that was enough to, to, to convince people that he could lead our, uh, lead our country. So, so, we only have a few minutes left here, and I've just enjoyed yep. this so much. Can I pitch you my craziest idea that I've thought of? Uh, and I think of a lot of crazy ideas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, of course you can. <laughs> and the reason I've been waiting to get this on the record, and today is April 28th, <laughs> and I don't know oh. if anybody else has just put this out in the public consciousness before, but... I was reading that Mitch McConnell profile by Jane Mayer in The yeah, New Yorker, yeah. and it just was extraordinary how, you know, it was so well-researched. And, you know, the summation was that this guy has zero principles. It's only power. Yeah. And he doesn't care about anything except for the um, accumulation of that power. And yeah. there's just nothing particularly he's working toward. And, you know, the the thing for you know people in my position that we find you know the, the gravest of all those sins is holding up Merrick Garland uh, with something like three hundred and fifty five days before the election. Um, yeah, like just it just seems um, like such a it's so undemocratic. And so when I was reading that through, and he was talking, uh, he was being quoted about his October surprise, uh, which was essentially that, um, you know, win or lose for Trump, um, he has his eyes on uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg's health. And he thinks that, um, you know, were she not to be on the court, uh, you know, before, uh, I think it's like January 3rd, uh, 2000 or yeah, 2021, that he would be able to ram through another Supreme Court justice. Um, you know, that setting the stage for the next words out of my mouth. Have you heard anybody on in, in any of your your political circles talking about is there a possibility that that um, RBG has in place? Um, you know, let's say she were to get sick and she were to go into a coma. Uh, does she have anything mm -hmm. in place like life-sustaining equipment? Like she, she could be on uh, brain uh, or you know heart and lung function to keep her alive, um, and you know just so that she could be she'd have to be impeached for her to get off off the court, even if she wasn't able to do her duties. And 
would that be one of the most ultimate fuck yous politically of all time if she has something like that in place as a contingency plan for um, her health failing, um, you know, which obviously I hope it doesn't happen uh, right. at, at any point between now and uh, early next year? Well, uh, I don't. I don't even want to put this in the universe, universe CK, just the, the idea of, uh, of RBG, uh, not continuing to do what she does. Uh, I, I don't even, I don't even want to want to have that thought. Um, which is fair. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. just, it, you know, it, I, it, it, I, just the most practical <laughs> sort of like, like, but I, if she's not getting good health care, uh, then, uh, then we've got we've got major issues. It sounds every time there's a news alert or an update, I, I think they're like heart palpitation. I know. Um, but but no, I, it's an interesting theory you've concocted. I I hope that she's thought it through, uh, and that there are contingencies to the contingencies. Uh, but but two two asides from the point you raise. One uh, on on the New Yorker piece. It's really stressful. This is just, again, a, a tangent, really stressful as a, a press secretary or communications director working on a piece like that with a reporter where you, you don't really know where they're going to go. Uh, that is an example of about the most brutal uh, New Yorker profile that could possibly be. be <laughs> Jane Mayer is course, so good. She is so good at her job. Of course, they generally aren't going to write glowing, uh, glowing profiles. Uh, uh, about uh, some of the conservatives in power. Uh, we did one with, with Connie Brock toward the end of uh, Governor Brown's tenure that, that was much, much nicer and didn't talk about him uh, seeking power for power's sake. The other piece, and this is a shameless plug, I actually listened to that through an app called Autumn. Are you familiar with Autumn? I'm, I'm not. So it's all long-form journalism that is read aloud. Interesting. So it's, it's your your book tape. Yeah, I don't know why I call it a book tape. That, that shows how, how, how old, how old I, I am when I think of them as book tapes. But anyway, your your audio book uh, equivalent for long form journalism. So they've got all all sorts of beyond the New Yorker. They have all sorts of pieces. But I found myself starting to read it and then going back. But if I if I listen to it while I was working out or on a walk or a run, then then I would get through these pieces. So anyway. Again, a, a str- strange plug, shameless plug, but definitely something. Uh, no, I'm. I'm, I'm going to check handful that out. Of people listening should check out if they're into uh, it. Is there... I, I, <laughs> no, continue, please. We're, we're, we're about out of time, but I owed you two things that, uh, and this is this is press secretary work here because you always close the loop. We had talked about whether Bill Richardson was governor oh, when uh, when I was you're, out in New Mexico. You are my favorite person right now, Evan. Well, you should. If you've also, if you've ever worked with the New Yorker, you would also know their their fact checking. The best in the world is insane. It really is. Uh, literally, tick, spent, tick. like hours on the piece that they wrote uh, on Jerry Brown. Anyway, that's that's another side. But Bill Richardson was in fact governor of New Mexico when I was in New Mexico. Though we didn't really work with him, I was in Albuquerque instead of Santa Fe, except for election night where we partied in Santa Fe. The other piece that we didn't close the loop on, or I didn't have at my uh, at the ready, was how many points Jerry Brown won by in 2010. Yes, and I that was curious like, about that. That was that was a 13 point margin. So again, Jesus. I knew it was significant <laughs> enough to, to 
call it the, the wow. night of the election. And you but, guys were yeah, down, you said, points. going uh, like like weeks out, right? Or like at least months out? Yeah, we, uh, a month or two out, sort of before Labor Day, uh, the race was very tight. But that was also before he had spent, spent much money. So Still, that's, that's uh, incredible. Those were, that's so satisfying. Yeah. And he, he was reelected by a larger margin, but mo- <laughs> most people couldn't, couldn't tell you who his opponent was. I, uh, I have no idea who was it. He was on 60 Minutes actually a couple weeks ago. Uh, and it, it, it sort of uh, 60 Minutes gave is featuring, me, fla- <laughs> gave me flashback, <laughs> featured his opponent. So it was Neil Kashkari. Who is that? Who's now head of like the Federal Reserve Bank oh in, in Minneapolis or something like that. Uh, he had he had been at the Treasury during the financial crisis, if I recall correctly, and and sort of arose out of that. Yeah, See, I mean, again, it sounds like a okay, this is the me. point. It's the point. I I chose if if I wanted to to you know rise and have my own podcast and and be famous politically. DC is the place to do that. We, we out west here. We're we're a f- long ways away from your uh, your East Coast excitement, action, the fulcrum. Yeah, there so. there is a there is a lot of excitement out here, and Lord knows that over the coming um, God, we're in uh, that makes it seven months. In the coming seven months or six months now, there is going to be even more excitement, um, and. I really hope and pray that if anything strikes your fancy that you would like to talk about and have it be recorded, that you'll shoot me a message and say, CK, let's uh, let's set up the, the pod and have a conversation because that's what I'm here for. For sure. And may, maybe, you know, at this point you'll have inspired me to 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 start my own uh, my own thing. I'll, I'll find another another way to fill one of those uh, one of those buckets. You know what? Um, if if I did inspire you to do that, I think you'd be the fourth or fifth person in the last seven weeks who has um, who's called me up and said, "Hey, we're actually starting our own podcast over here." That, um, so, I that say, is that's so awesome. Cool. And then you know what I do? I, there's a great YouTube tutorial, and I send it over, and it's super easy to set up. and And then I check out what they're doing, and I'm just it, it's fun. It's fun to get these conversations out there if only for the sake of having the conversations in the first place so i know we're uh, i know we're over time but what 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 else what else are you doing to to fill to fill your time this is one of the questions i'm posing for for friends and family how else are you filling your time i mean obviously the podcast is taking up a, a great deal of it uh, as is i'm sure managing your your day to day with your 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 business. Uh, how else are you are you filling your time? Days are days are long. Days start at around eight. Um, wake up, uh, twenty minutes of meditation. Uh, get on emails. Uh, a good example and just a tight time frame is I sent out last week uh, a note to four hundred ninety five email addresses of people oh that Lord. I had worked with over the last ten years, basically saying. You know, events uh, for the next two years. Um, I think we can all, uh, or we all should, um, forecast them as not being up and running uh, to what we have expected. And as such, uh, I don't have any answers. 
um, but this is what I'm doing. If anybody would like to uh, talk to me um, about virtual ideas, he, I, I am here. I'm doing all this work, consulting work uh, pro bono um, through the end of June at the very least. Um, and just from that email alone, I probably got 50 or 60 responses. Um, so I am interviewing in a podcast form next Tuesday a scientist who does uh, polar bear research and climate change for one of my clients. Um, I'm interviewing a doctor for a healthcare provider in June, and I'm going to sprinkle in uh, requests for donations uh, to that particular organization. Uh, yeah. You know, and so. I have, at, this is my 79th interview in the last seven weeks, um, and I am now going to start using the interview format as a mode of fundraising for my clients. Um, and just managing, I did 101 auctions last year, and I had a wow. bunch scheduled for the fall. Yeah, no, look, the, the work thankfully and interestingly takes me all over the world you know rather from hong kong this year alone in 2020 i did events in jackson hole wyoming just outside of detroit savannah georgia toronto um and then a couple in new york in the tri-state area and that's just and that was before coronavirus shut everything down so you know really trying to be a repository for information because uh, there's not really a centralized way of figuring all this stuff out um and in that just takes up a ton of time uh, along with exercise um, and the the time alone to record these interviews edit them and post them um, is uh, I can't multitask I'm just so focusing when I'm doing this and so the day ends and usually around 11 or midnight and I'm just like where where did the day go you know, and I've, so I've kind of been going nonstop aside from exercise in meals since uh, around nine, nine thirty in the morning. Wow. Well, busy is always better than I bored. love it. I love it. And you, you know what I'm really excited about is following up, uh, after, after we hang up, which I think we both need to do here and just sure. sending you a list of people. I'm like, Hey, have you thought about talking to them? Because I think it's so cool that your future, it's not a blank slate, but you have so many ways you can go. It's like you have um, a lonely planet for the entire world, and you just get to leaf through and be like, I want to go there and have a meal in that restaurant, in that village, in that county of that country, you know, of that hemisphere. And it's anywhere. You could go do anything, and that's so cool. It, it's exciting. Uh, and and ta talking about it uh, has has definitely uh, not 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 just added to uh, to, to confusion uh, about what's next, but it, but it's it's made me think a, a little bit more. As I, I think I told you by a text, definitely made me think a little bit more about uh, about what what what's impacted me and, and what I want to do next. So I appreciate you uh, forcing me. Uh, you know, you forced me, of course, uh, compelled compelling me invited <laughs> to, you to think that through exactly so uh so thanks again CK. well this has been such a pleasure i the reconnecting part of it has just been one of the, the chief surprises uh, of this endeavor and i look forward to our conversations off podcast line going forward for sure you, you'll hear a, a few less uhs <laughs> And, um, we all have to worry about this. It's brutal. Certainlys and yeahs. <laughs> Editing these things, especially because it's 
on my end, the the vocal range uh, needs a lot more work than on the phone end, and it's just brutal to hear all your own mistakes. It's part of the process, though. That's 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 how we learn. <laughs> we we de- debrief and dissect, uh, and uh, and then get up and move forward. So. I love that. W- words to live by and words to end our three part series. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, dude. Take, Take care. care.